Welcome to the Ion Annapolis Local Business Spotlight. There are thousands of locally owned businesses in the area, some small and some large. Some you may know and others you don't. But one thing they all have in common is a great story, and we want to share it with you. Join us every Saturday as we talk to the founders, the owners, and the managers of local businesses you have come to know and love, and those you will come to know and love. Now here's your host, John Frenet, with this week's Local Business Spotlight. Joining us on the phone right now is Dr. Jason Taxi, who is a doctor with Maryland Oncology Hematology. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, hey, thank you for calling. And one question for you right off the bat I got for you. You're part of Maryland Oncology Hematology. What is the difference? There are two words. So oncology refers to uh, management of cancer. And you know, specifically, we're medical oncologists. So we're the ones that give the medicines like like chemotherapy. Uh, hematology would is broadly disorders of, of the blood. So that can include cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, but it, it can also include benign conditions like anemia or, or low white blood count or, or other blood count issues. Okay, okay. And you are based out of 810 Bestgate Road, which is that bright new big shiny building right on Bestgate Road with a new traffic signal out in front of it, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was for a while, it was going up. It's like, what's going up for there? What's going up for there? And it's really, really nice building. And your website is marylandoncology.com. And you guys are well, obviously you're new to the building because the building was just completed probably six months ago. But is this a yeah. new practice in Maryland? It's actually not. So um, Maryland Oncology Hematology has been around for a while. I actually don't know that, that I know the exact uh, starting year, but uh, over time, the, the practice has increased. So we actually are the newest division. Uh, there there are now six divisions with, with us being the last one. There are, are other divisions um, in Silver Spring, um, in Southern Maryland, like, like the Clinton area, uh, Frederick, uh, as well as Rockville. So that there, there are six total divisions at this point in time. When you talk about divisions, are those offices? Well, so, um, so some of the, so our division right now, we only have one office. Uh, some of the divisions actually have multiple offices. Each division, to some extent, functions as an independent practice, but all six divisions come together, you know, under under one company, so to speak, and that allows us to um, achieve bigger goals like. Uh, running clinical trials, um, having more lab resources, just in terms of being able to uh, obtain and acquire the different medicines like chemotherapy. So, you know, we have a we have a you know a common company together, but each division does function um, to, to some level independently of each other. Okay, and how how many people are in your division? Uh, there's nine nine physicians in our division. Oh wow! Okay. So you guys have a, obviously the brain trust, if you will, as somebody as a patient's coming in. You've got eight other people that you can rely on for consults and everything else, as well as you're treating the patient. I imagine. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the important things in oncology is uh, is having other people to talk to. Um, we we do spend a lot of time talking with each other about patients, just to um, you know get ideas from each other, review data together, just make sure that we have um, you know a cohesive plan. What is your background? I mean, how did you get into oncology? Uh, so I, I was fortunate in that when I was an undergrad, I had the opportunity to do research at the National Cancer Institute um, just as a way to gain experience. And, you know, as I was starting my medical career before going to medical school. Um, and so at that point in time, I really, you know, became interested in, in the new science in oncology. I and mean, that was the beginning of when things were, were changing quite a bit for the better. 
when I ended up going to medical school, I had that background already. Um, and I, I found as I went through the different rotations that, you know, clinically, it was also, I think, one of the most, most rewarding fields in addition to just being one of the most interesting. Okay. Now, did you did you always want to be a doctor when you were like 12? I did. Yeah. I remember when I was in seventh grade, we had to write a, a, a paper for English class about what we wanted to be when you grew up. And, and that's what I picked was becoming a doctor. And when did it turn into an oncologist for you? So in terms of when did I choose to go? Yeah. To yeah. Was that, was that after you did your research in as an undergrad? Yeah. I th- so I, I think that I started down that path when I was doing the research in undergrad. Um, and then during your, your third year of medical school is when you start doing clinical rotations where you actually get to see each field in practice. Um, and so I think getting to see it really solidified my interest. And, and so as I you know started to apply for residencies uh, into the fourth year of medical school, um, I, I, you know, I went into internal medicine as a way to get into the, the oncology field. Interesting. I, well, I, I've talked to, I've got a couple of friends that are doctors and they've ended up in careers that totally weren't what, what they intended to, as far as, you know, getting into the medicine, medicine business. I mean, oh, I want to be the family doctor. I want to be a general practitioner and somebody is a, now a plastic surgeon. And it's, uh, you know, it's yeah. totally different. It says, well, no, I just, a bug got me and I really, really like that. Sometimes you fall into it and you don't know why. I guess that's, you know, that's good. I mean, you know, you've got the passion and something's driving you and that's awesome there. Well, I'll tell you, and and oncology is obviously, I mean, on the broader scope, you've got medicine. Oncology is obviously a specialized division or a specialized segment of the medical field. Within oncology, I mean, there are, and knocking on wood, I have not had to visit an oncologist and I you know, hope I never get to meet you in person anywhere other than over a beer someplace, but yeah, um, I agree. Uh, but I mean, are there subspecialties within oncology? So, so yeah, I mean, so, so oncology really is divided um, into surgical oncology. You know, obviously those are the people that do operations. Radiation oncology is the group that does radiation and, and then we're the medical oncologists. Um, so we, we primarily are giving the different medications um, and then within medical oncology, um, you know, the, the data has really just expanded exponentially in terms of how to manage cancers. So really now within medical oncology, I think each oncologist is developing an interest in a smaller part of the field. So as an example, there are lots of medical oncologists who will treat primarily lung cancer. Um, there are medical oncologists who will focus on breast cancer. Um, I, I've uh, followed an interest um, in neurological cancers. Um, and so as, as the field expands and treatments expand and we have more data, uh, we each have to, I think, start to narrow our focus um, more and more to make sure that we, you know, that we are, have expertise um, in a manageable amount of the field, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 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 it really does. And, and, and you mentioned you said cancers with the plural there. In the basic sense, are all cancer – I mean, I realize that there's, you know, there's breast cancer, there's prostate cancer, there's, you know, lung cancer, there's brain – there's a zillion different cancers. But are, in the most basic sense, are cancers all the same? Uh, so, I mean, so I, I would say that cancers are all really very different. In fact, you know, we, we make the statement lung cancer, but um, one lung cancer is not the same as another – and that's really, I think, been where we've really been able to make advances in treatment. Um, as we really, cancers are are the result of acquiring mutations over time, and with developing mutations, cells develop the ability to grow in an unregulated fashion. And so, um, just through through research, um, the field has been able to understand more and more which mutations lead to different cancers. 
And so, you know, as an example, lung cancer, you know, one person may have a lung cancer that's driven by mutation in a gene called EGFR, and that gives us one type of therapies, whereas another patient may have mutations in a gene called ALK, just as an example, which gives us a different type of therapy. Um, so, you know, not only are not all cancers the same, but even the same organ, a cancer in the same organ can be different from one patient to the next. Interesting. You're talking about the different mutations that are that are there. Now, are there cancers that that go undetected that are hidden, if you will? I mean, I, I, obviously, I know that I can go to my doctor, I can get a, a routine physical, and he finds a bump or something, you know, in an X-ray or something like that that looks a little suspicious, and that's how I would get to you, correct? Through a, through a referral. Correct. And obviously, I, or I can you know select you as because somebody's told me that I need to see an oncologist. But right. is there any kind of a telltale symptom that you would suspect? I mean, I know, uh, you know, they say if you're having a heart attack, you got that radiating thing going down your arms and feels like an elephant sitting on your chest and stuff like that. But I mean, is there anything, I mean, is there anything that cancer does that is common among all of them? It says, hey, you know, this needs to be checked out. Uh, so a lot of it is is really based upon location. Um, there There are many cancers where there are, proven screening tests that help us get it early. So you think about mammogram uh, for breast cancer, you know, in, you know, in particular in women, we think about the PSA blood test for prostate cancer in men, just as a couple of examples, or, you know, colonoscopy for colon cancer. So those are situations where there's a test out there that has been proven to catch the cancer early uh, when it may be asymptomatic, um, when it's, you know, perhaps at its most curable stage. Um, many other cancers don't have a screening test that's been proven. So you think about pancreatic cancer as an example. Um, we really don't have a tool for that cancer where we know if we do a certain test like a CT scan, we don't really have data that tells us that we're going to catch it early. So then in those cases, it is based upon symptoms, as you mentioned. And then the symptoms that you would see really depend upon what kind of, what kind of cancer is, what the location is. So just to use pancreatic cancer as an example, that may come with abdominal pain uh, as a sign. Uh, kidney cancers sometimes come with blood in the urine as a sign that something is wrong. Uh, lung cancer may be chest pain or shortness of breath. So so the symptoms that somebody would have really depend upon the location of the cancer. But it sounds like the symptoms that you get for most of the cancers, I guess, then are, are fairly significant. I mean, it's not going to be just like, okay, I, I jokingly say, you know, the worst thing you can do is when you're feeling bad is go to WebMD because the next thing you know, you're going to be dying of some kind of disease that's, you know, available, you know, was eradicated in the 1400s in some country. It seems like, you know, there are, those are significant symptoms. All of a sudden I'm, I'm peeing and there's blood in the urine. I'm like, okay, right. hey, I need, I need to get that looked at. Uh, I'm, you know, it's just not that taco that I that I just ate. I mean, I'm really getting some stomach pains. That's that's your body giving you the the warning sign, right? Um, but I, I, you know, what I would say is that most of the time, any random symptom that any of us can have is not cancer. You know, so we all have to be careful not to you know take a symptom and and jump to the wrong conclusion. You know, most of the time, if you have abdominal pain, it's it's totally unrelated. Maybe it was something that, that you ate. Right. Um, so what I, you know, what I would say is, first of all, we always should be up to date on our, on our cancer screening. So, you know, having a colonoscopy by the age of 50, for example, I think it's important to do that 
So when there are proven screening tests, I, I highly recommend that we all follow through on them. Um, with all these other symptoms that can sometimes be more subtle, um, I would say, you know, we do have to be careful not to always jump to uh, the worst case scenario when we have a symptom. But if there's a symptom that's just persistent, you know, like let's say that, you know, you develop a new new pain in the abdomen um, and it's just not going away, then I think it's worth being evaluated. But if it's a symptom that happens just on one day, you know, you eat something that you don't normally eat and then it goes away and doesn't come back, you know, that's a situation where you just have to be careful not to not to assume the worst. You know, cancer I know is very, very tricky. I mean, you know, again, thankfully, you know, my parents have both passed on, but neither of them were, um, you know, with any type of a cancer. But my dad did have prostate cancer, and it was kind of interesting that they had went to treat that because they felt that was a little bit more advanced. But they discovered some bladder cancer. And this is secondhand. I didn't speak with the doctor that was treating him. But my father said the bladder cancer looked like it was like you took a handful of pepper and threw it against a wet paper towel. It was like a lot of little tiny lesions or spots. Yeah. But then when they treated the prostate cancer and they went back and they said, okay, fine, let's go back now and look at the uh, bladder cancer. It was gone. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, and they figured that it might've been the, uh, the treatment that they did for the prostate that may have gone at a lower dose or whatever it is and, and affected whatever was in the bladder. So it, it's really a, a difficult job to determine the course of action, I imagine, of what to do and how to treat. Yeah, I mean, this is the challenging thing in, in cancer um, is is that, again, you know, even in the same part of the body, the same cancer can be different from person to person. But you know, I would say that, um, you know, we really have reached a point in cancer management where it, there's a lot of standardization. There are published guidelines that um, that we all tend to follow. There's there's a, a guideline called the National Cooperative Cancer Network that that we all tend to look at as we're doing treatment planning. There's also the American Society of Clinical Oncology that publishes guidelines. Um, and really, these guidelines allow oncologists um, you know, nationwide or even you know, throughout the world to, to really follow proven diagnostic techniques and proven treatments to have, to have consistency um, so that you're not getting a different plan just because you happen to go to a different part of the country. Is there a cause for cancers? I mean, is this all a man-made type of thing? I mean, I know I've heard stories of, you know, okay, there's some chemicals that get into the water and stuff like that, and there's a preponderance of cancers that it just reacts with the body and it develops into a cancer or something like that. Is it always some external force that triggers a cancer, or is it just something genetic that, or both? So it, it can really be both. Um, you know, really, if you, if you think about, you know, for me to to perhaps oversimplify it. I mean, cancer is the result of, of mutations. And again, it has to be specific mutations that allow cells to grow in an unregulated fashion. So some people inherit um, an abnormal gene that starts the process where, you know, as, as an example, there are, are genes um, called tumor suppressor genes that, you know, roughly function to help prevent cancer development. So if you're, if you're born missing some of the, you know, one part of a gene like that, and then you develop a mutation to lose the other part of a tumor suppressor gene, um, then that can help contribute to a cancer. So, so that's part of where um, you can inherit it. You can inherit a, a, a predisposition to cancers. But in other cases, it has to do with acquiring mutations over time. And that can sometimes be environmental. So we think about smoking as causing DNA damage, leading to mutations, and that's that's what contributes to cancers like lung cancer or even bladder cancer. 
you can think about um, UV radiation from the sun uh, causing DNA damage in our skin that can lead to mutations to lead to different skin cancers. So, so you know, really the answer is both. We, we can all be born with certain genes that predispose us to cancers, but then through different exposures throughout our lifetimes, we can also acquire mutations that contribute as well. Interesting. Well, my mother, my mother actually was a four to five pack a day smoker for about 40 years, um, wow. which was, yeah, no, I mean, when, when she passed away and we're cleaning out our houses, I mean, the, what used to be white curtains were like a lovely shade of brown by the time we, you know, they came down with all the nicotine that was out there. But it was hysterical in that when they examined, examined her, she had no, no lung cancer. There was no lung issues with her. And I mean, you know, she just quit in her, um, gosh, I'm thinking probably about 50, 55. And some doctor just, you know, pardon the language, just scared the shit out of her. And she said, okay, I'm, I'm cold turkey. And she did quit cold turkey after that many years. And it, it was hysterical because it was mostly the smoking was all a, a crutch. I mean, I've got baby pictures of me with her like burping me and her cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other. Uh, but that was back in the sixties. But you know, she had a you know she had a, a fake cigarette, a toy cigarette, which they can't sell anymore, probably. But that was her crutch. She had it in between her fingers, and she would talk to you with the fake cigarette and everything else, and pretend to puff on it, and for a while, and then she ultimately weaned herself off of it. But again, it was you know whether it was a genetic thing, I guess that would stave off that one because you would think certainly with that type of uh, smoking that there would be some damage in there. Yeah, and that's actually, I think, an important point is, you know, just because we are exposed to environmental factors like smoking that increase risk, it doesn't mean that it will cause a cancer. I mean, it's just increasing the risk. Um, and, you know, there's there's probably a lot that we don't understand in terms of the body's own protective mechanisms to help correct mutations and, and reduce risk in the setting of, a, of an exposure like that. But, you know, again, just, just because we have an exposure doesn't mean that it's going to lead to, to a cancer down the road. You said you did your undergrad up at uh, UMD? I did, yeah. Are you, in, are you a native Merlander? I am, yeah. I, uh, I ended up uh, growing up and going to high school in, in, uh, in Howard County. Um, so I've been, been in Maryland my whole life for the most part. Okay. What brought you, what brought you to Annapolis and Anne Arundel County? The job? Yeah, I mean, so so I ended up doing most of my my medical training in Philadelphia, and so when I finished, we're in uh, Philadelphia. My, I was at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Okay. Um. So so when I finished, my wife and I wanted to be back close to family, um, and so knew we wanted to come back to the area, and and yeah, I mean, I thought I thought this was one of the best practices around, so I I was excited to be able to be part of it. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, have we come close to curing cancer? I think that's a great question. I I think what I would say about that is we can cure. A lot of cancers. You think about um, any early stage cancer, we can often cure, and and that that's you know pretty broad for all the different types of cancer out there. As cancers become more advanced, so you think about what we call metastatic or stage four cancer, we're still in a situation where when cancers become more widespread or advanced, we can't cure them, but we really have been able to control them for a dramatically longer amount of time than we than we used to. And so I think we're getting better at curing earlier stage cancers, but we're also getting a lot better at controlling more advanced cancers for a longer period of time and with less side effects from therapy. Our therapies are getting more targeted um, and easier to tolerate. Aside from the, um, I, I guess, the, what you have to go through, whether it be, you know, what in dealing with the cancer, what other suggestions do you have for cancer fighters and 
family members for, you know, to coping with this. Cause I mean, I can't imagine there's a worse conversation than to sit down at the dinner table and say, Hey, I was just at the doctor's and he says, I've got cancer. And it, you know, it could be just a, a fairly minor form of cancer, but it could also be something very serious. But I mean, what types of support do you recommend for people that are going through that? I think family support is always the most important thing. Um, you know, every so often I've, you know, you know, met someone or met a patient who uh, doesn't want want to discuss with family. Um, but I find that that can be very difficult because even if we tell someone that the prognosis is great, it still creates a lot of stress. So I, I think having family support, being able to to have uh, loved ones around to um, you know talk you through the concerns, you know, maybe take you to treatments. I think that can be very important in terms of quality of life um, uh, in really in really navigating the diagnosis. Uh, there are often support groups out there for different cancer types. So, you know, there are usually breast cancer support groups where people with a common diagnosis can talk and, you know, you know, talk through their experiences and, and you know, be there to support each other. So I think, you know, looking at, at support groups, I think, can be helpful because, you know, in a, in a tough situation, I think it's always helpful to have people who have gone through it um, and can share share their advice. Uh, I think that can always be very helpful. And then, you know, I think it's important that that patients, um, you know, talk to their oncologists. Um, you know, I, I find that sometimes my most helpful experiences with patients are those who write down their questions um, so that we can really look at everything and, and go through. Sometimes if, if someone is afraid to ask a question or doesn't write it down and they don't remember it, um, I think that can add to stress because they, they still have unanswered concerns. So so I always certainly advise people to write down a lot of their questions so when they come to an appointment, we can really just run through everything that they're thinking um, and answer the questions and, and also help manage symptoms and side effects. Um, you know, because again, if, if you write down those kind of things, then you won't forget them and we'll, we'll have, have the ability to to address any of those concerns. That's a great suggestion. I'm, I'm a, I'm a guy that loves lists and check boxes and everything else. I mean, if I, if, yeah, I would be totally doing that. I mean, we would, we would figure out a couple hours to sit down and go over my list by the time we were done, you know, done with this. But and, yeah. I, and I know I've worked with the uh, wellness house of Annapolis a couple of times with some different things and they're, they're a good resource for, you know, families and, you know, people that are fighting or, you know, and whatnot, right down the road on Mosque Farms. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I guess one one other question is, is: How long is it going to be until you're unemployed? Uh, I mean, yeah. when 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 are we when are we going to do this? Is this going to happen in your lifetime? Well, I I think that um, I don't think it's likely that I'm going to be unemployed um, in in my lifetime. I I think really what's going to happen is we're going to take a diagnosis that you know, historically has created a lot of, a lot of fear into more of a diagnosis that is more like a chronic illness. I think that we're going to keep getting better um, at providing treatments that are well tolerated and very effective so that, you know, even cancers in advanced stages, you know, I think it'll become more likely that you can live with them. Um, and I think over time they will become less, less life-threatening as, as again, we learn more about how to treat cancer in a targeted way. So, um, unfortunately, I, I don't know that we're going to completely eradicate it, um, you know, within my, my, my time left working, but I do think that we're making substantial, um, improvements in being able to make it a, a more like a chronic illness, if, if that makes sense. Well, I, th- I think in medicine in general, we have 
really gone leaps and bounds over the the years. And I mean, I I would hope that it would be fairly soon that um, you know that we that we could find a cure for most cancers. I, I look at this COVID nineteen thing where we developed a vaccine in less than a year uh, is yeah. pre- is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, you know, at you know back in the nineteen eighties, if you were diagnosed with uh, HIV. I mean, that was, that was a death sentence, uh, essentially. Right. And now it's, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, there's just so many ways that we can treat that. I mean, and again, we'll go back into the seventies and the eighties. It was like, Oh, your mom's got cancer. Your dad's got cancer. Your aunt's got cancer. Um, that was it just a matter of when, and Sorry. you know, now it's, you know, you look at governor Hogan who, you know, who, who fought that and it, it's been in remission. You look at these women that are, uh, you know, diagnosed with breast cancer, some that have it in their genetics that they preemptively go for treatment and go for mastectomies just to, you know, prevent it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of options that are available to us now that weren't 10, 20, you know, certainly 30 years ago. That's for sure. Absolutely. I, and I think um, HIV is actually a great example. You know, we, we're not in those who develop HIV, we're not curing it at this point. Um, but we don't think about it in the same way as a life-threatening illness. You know, patients take their antiviral medications and I think very often live um, a much better and longer quality of life than when it first came out. And that's what I think is likely to what's happening with cancer. As we learn more about mutations and develop more therapies to target those mutations in cancer patients, I think we're also turning it um, to more of a chronic illness that we can manage. And so, so, I, so I think that's, that's the, the example where things are going. Well, if anybody has, you know, questions, I mean, I'm looking at your, uh, not about us, but the, the your team that you've got there. I mean, you've got some great talent, some, you know, Harvard Medical. I mean, I see that you uh, did a residency up at Temple up in Philadelphia with. That's right. So, um, you know, I went to, did my undergraduate up there. So it's a great city. You know, it is, it's, uh, it's like, it's like Baltimore a lot that, you know, it can get a really bad rap. But it when you when you dig deep and you peel back the layers of the onions, there's there's some really great things that are about it. Yeah, so I agree. So it's uh, kind of except for that road from the airport into the city. That's just horrible. They should do something with that. That's the, like the worst thing in the world. You know, welcome to Philadelphia. Here's the oil fields. Um, but that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but that is what it is. But um, again, the website is MarylandOncology.com. Uh, you guys are located in the new building at 810 Bestgate Road, uh, Suite 400, which is what, midway up on that thing? Or are you up on the top floor? We're the top floor. Ooh, got the penthouse. Okay. That's right. <laughs> nothing but we, nothing but the best. We, uh, we want to have the best view. <laughs> the best view on Bestgate. The best gate and the best right. view. Fantastic. Can people contact you just if they have questions or would you prefer them to, to go to their, their primary care physician? No, actually, I think we're always happy to be there for, for any questions people may have. So, um, I mean, I think we, we're definitely open to talking with, with people if, if they want to reach out. And just one thing, I didn't touch on this before, but as far as treatment goes, I mean, obviously you're you're in an office building, okay? I'm sure there's probably a mortgage company on the floor below you. Um, so you are not, I mean, are you actually treating patients within your facility? We are, yeah. As um, far as so, the treatment goes, I mean, obviously you're you're seeing them. and Yeah, so, so the, the way that most um, community oncology practices like ours work, you know, we have space with exam rooms to to see patients. We have a lab to do uh, diagnostic testing, but then we also are giving our infusions in the same space. So it really is, you know, you know, just one one location for everything. So most of our treatments are given in our office. 
Okay. And then if, if there was a type of a cancer or something like that, where there had to be, you know, some type of surgery, then obviously you go to a hospital and, and you figure out, you know, what's going on there at that point. Yeah. I mean, we, we work, um, you know, closely with our, our local surgical oncology colleagues um, and, and radiation oncology as well when, when those treatments are, are indicated. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Jason Taxi from Maryland Oncology Hematology. Uh, I appreciate your time this afternoon. And, you know, thank you for educating me. I, th- these are the ones that I love where I come in and I, I know nothing about it. And honestly, I hope I never get to know anything more deeply than what I've learned today from you. No offense, but you know, what you're doing is just so critical and, and important to sit there and see that, you know, the leaps and bounds that we've you know taken in cancer treatment and steps to curing cancer. I think we live in a very great city, a great county that has this and to have a practice that's, you know, literally right here in our backyard is wonderful. And I, I love that you're, you're fairly new to Annapolis, not you personally, but uh, you know, the bit, the, the business, the practice is new and, you know, it sort of says something why you located here. So I think that's, uh, that goes a long way. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's Local Business Spotlight. Please make sure to visit ionanapolis.net for all your local news, events, and opinion. And in case you haven't already, please subscribe to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief, where we bring you all the day's local news direct to your phone, tablet, or computer in about 10 minutes. It comes to you at 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.